This is an ABC podcast. Coming to you from Gadigal land, it's Sarah Dingle here, keeping the chair warm for Philip as he spends some time on his farm in bucolic bliss. Meanwhile, tonight you and I are heading to the G7, which is meeting this Friday in Hiroshima, Japan. We're going to have some of the local okonomiyaki and chat to Pierre Prakash from the International Crisis Group about whether this week's G7, with its bonus guests, including Indonesia, Australia and Vietnam, will have more of a focus on the Asian region and its concerns. And later, what do cave art and K-pop have in common? You might say nothing, but Martin Puckner says otherwise. His latest book tracks culture throughout history and argues that instead of something that can be owned, it's more of a really messy cross-pollination. Dangerous stuff in the time of culture wars. Well, there's still no date for the first Australian referendum of the 21st century, but as always, the debate continues. Wording of the referendum question was approved by a Senate committee this week, but there's still concerns about it, including from Coalition MP and former Shadow Attorney General Julian Lisa, a supporter of the Yes Vote. There's been the coming together of two different no groups, plus, you know, some news out of the budget, of course. Tonight, we welcome Selwyn Button as our guest. Selwyn is the chair of the Lewitcher Institute, which does independent Indigenous health research. He's also a partner in PwC's Indigenous Consulting Arm and a member of the Voice Referendum Engagement Group. Welcome, Selwyn. So, and first of all, uh, there's been a few polls around, but there was one in particular out today uh, in nine newspapers, which shows that support for The Voice is slipping. 58% of Australians previously said they would vote yes, and that's now down to 53. Mm-hmm. How concerning is that? What's going wrong here? Look, I think it's, it is very much about some of the mixed messages that are going on across the country and, and no different to, to any any event or any major election that you're working towards, polls are going to go up and down throughout the process. Um, but certainly what, what we know within the campaign itself is that there does need to be more of a, a, I guess, a sharpened focus on hitting some of those key messages and making sure that we're speaking directly to the Australian public and taking the conversation away uh, from Canberra and from politicians to make sure it's it's actually just about a general conversation with the Australian public who are the ones that are going to turn up on on the polling day uh, to to vote in the referendum. Well, sorry, sorry to immediately drag you back to Canberra, yeah, uh, but right. I, I do want to ask you, Shadow Attorney General Julian Lisa, who is a supporter of the yes vote, as we should say you are. Uh, Julian Lisa, of course, actually resigned from the opposition front bench because he wanted to be able to vote yes. He yeah. says the wording of the referendum question is a real problem. Do you think he's right? Look, I. I disagree, um, and certainly what we have seen through the recent parliamentary committee process is that we've had some of the most preeminent constitutional lawyers in the country, um, including Professor Ann Toomey, who've come out in support of uh, the wording, in support of the clause and the question, and essentially saying it's it's sound, um, it's, it's something that um, won't be subject to significant litigation and, and should suffice in what it's attempting to do. Uh, to, for the creation of the voice and an alteration for the constitution. But its its legal merits are one thing and its perception, like how it's perceived is another. Do you think it worries Australians? Um, and, and Mr Lisa is correct in saying we need to remove the proposed amendments to allow the voice to make representations to the executive government. Look, I, I don't, I, I don't think so. I think having, having the words in there to ensure that we can make representations to the, um, to the executive government are an important aspect of it. As and, it, and you only have to to look at a comparison with existing processes that currently are in operation within the Australian Parliament, which is the parliamentary committees. Now, the parliamentary committees have an exi- are an existing provision in the Australian Constitution. It doesn't actually specify the detail of how those parliamentary committees operate. Those are in the parliamentary standing orders. 
but parliamentary committees provide advice on policy and legislation to the parliament of the day on a regular basis. It's part and parcel of our democratic process. But when you think about how many times a parliamentary committee has actually um, taken a matter that hasn't been considered or has been rejected and taken that to court, um, there's I can't think of any of them. And so if you think about the current legal structures, and by the way, parliamentary committees don't just contain politicians. They also have members of the public that come and sit on those committees that provide expert advice to politicians around policy and legislation. So if we're thinking of existing constructs that operate well already and provide good advice to, to the parliament to inform policy and legislation for the Australian public, and we only have to look at that comparison to show that these things can work. So what should the Yes campaign be doing at this point then? The No campaign has been very successful in, you know, being very vocal, getting a lot of attention. And the Yes campaign, on the other hand, perhaps not quite so successful. What do you think is missing? Look, I think what we, what, what's missing at the moment, and this this has to be the focus, certainly for the campaign over the, over the next couple of months, um, is very much about connecting with those stories that are happening in local communities that show that bringing community leaders together and having regular conversations about how to change things locally um, can make a significant difference. And the only thing that we don't have at the moment from those local stories is a direct connection to a construct, a national construct, that enables decisions to be made or policy and legislation to be influenced before it's actually sent out to community. Unfortunately, what we do see in many circumstances and the stories we hear across the country is that what we're doing in, in local areas is responding to policy and legislation after the fact. And and with the voice construct, we're, we're wanting to flip that on its head to say, how do we influence that at the earliest possible time, not just respond to it once it's been shipped out from Canberra or, or in any other um, capital city for that matter, and how can we influence it at the national level, but making sure that the influence is actually coming from local stories. And it's those local stories that we do need to hear a hell of a lot more of. Well, you are up against a new group. Uh, Australians for Unity uh, is the name of uh the new name of two of the groups which previously opposed uh, a voice to parliament, uh, Jacinta Nabachimba Price's group and Warren Mundine's group, have united. Does that make this new group, Australians for Unity, a force to be reckoned with twice over? <laughs> Look, I, there's, there's, strength, there's strength in bringing them together. And, and certainly I, um, it, it's, a, it's a smart move by those groups to, to, to move, um, to, I guess, to, to start to shift in that direction. That's certainly what I would hope that they are able to do and continue to do throughout the process, which is something that we um, have seen a lot of, is, is providing actually um, some factual information. What we've seen a lot, we've seen, I guess, in the, in the campaign process up to this point is, is a fair bit of disinformation that comes from the no from the no camp in relation to the advice that's been given out to people all across the country um, to, to confuse the, the Australian public into making an uninformed decision when they when they go to the go to the vote at the end of the year. Speaking of confusion, um, a sort of a war of words, I suppose you could say, has broken out um, in the last 24 hours or so. Both Jacinta Price and Warren Mundine um, are now in the news because of allegations that they wrongly claimed that Vincent Lingiari's grandson was a supporter of the No campaign. Vincent Lingiari, of course, the extremely famous man who led the Wave Hill walk-off in the 1960s. Stuart Lingari says he never said he was a grandson of Vincent. But it gets complicated because the Sydney Morning Herald reports that Warren Mundine says Stuart is a grandson in the cultural sense. The Guardian says Stuart Lingari says now he doesn't want his image to be used in no campaign materials online. What are we to make of this all? Yeah, look, and, and, and it comes down to making sure that we do have an effective watchdog throughout the process to, so that there is factual information that comes from both sides, in not just not just from the no camp, but also from the from the yes campaigns. In the sense of the information that's being provided to the Australian public, we do need to make sure that the electoral commission is playing a role um, in in ensuring that it's factual information that actually goes out to the public. And this is a great example where there is misinformation; it's not factual. Um, the person themselves who's been subject to it. Has come out and said that he that's that's not 
he doesn't have a family connection. Um, he didn't actually agree with what what was being put on the paper in front of him, um, but he he did that and delivered that anyway. And so it's it's making sure we're we're doing that, and and we have we have someone that oversights that and and ensures that the Australian public are being fed the correct information to make informed decisions. Well, let's go to your wheelhouse, which is of course health. Tell us about what you believe the significance of the voice is for Indigenous health. Do you see a direct link between the work of the Lowitcher Institute and having a voice to Parliament? Look, absolutely. Um, certainly the work that's been going on through the Lowitcher Institute uh, for the last for the last 25-odd years has been very much about giving voice to local communities. And, and certainly at the heart of that is funding research projects that happen um, in many communities all across the country that other researchers um, won't undertake. And, and by that, it's, it's very much about community-led research and identifying priorities in local communities and determining what are those things that people feel um, are, the res- are the research questions that should be answered in their local community. And, and that's been the subject of, I guess, the, the grants that we've funded and, and the researchers that we've, we've commissioned to undertake that. That's the type of activity we've been doing for many, many decades, and it's now about how do you give voice to that? How do you give rise to that? Because once, when you do, you can see significant change that actually happens in local communities. So there is a direct correlation between the work of the Lowitzer Institute and how that would then feed into um, a national voice. I think in a, you could probably say in a similar vein, um, the, the National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation um, operates in a similar space because it's, uh, instead of health research, it's primary healthcare services, but it's, uh, it provides the services that Indigenous communities ask for. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So, and certainly the whole notion of, <clears throat> of NACHO and the community control um, health organisations right across the country are about responding to the needs of the community. And when the first, and, and certainly the Brisbane, the Aboriginal, Aboriginal Medical Service here in Brisbane, where I am located, um, celebrated its 50-year anniversary this year. And and listening to the stories, and it celebrated its anniversary dinner in at the City Hall on Saturday night. And we got to listen to the stories of the founding, uh, founding fathers of the organisation who talked about creating creating an organisation that responded to the needs of the community where government was failing um, and others were failing and services weren't being provided and not being provided in a way that met the needs of community, that's when the the rise of community control came up and organisations were formed to make sure that they could meet that need. And in many cases, um, they, were, they were shunned by government. Um, they were poorly funded. They weren't provided with resources at the time. Um, but they kept doing it because they saw the need to do it and they could see that community was responding to a, to a different way of doing things. Mm. I mentioned Nacho because um, Nacho didn't actually receive any overall funding increase in the recent federal budget. But, however, it was allocated $10.5 million for mental health measures because of the expected impacts of referendum debates. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? Look at... It is it is shocking that we have to do that. Um, although, as we've seen from, I guess, recent experience in relation to the same-sex marriage debate, um, the impacts and the trauma that was experienced by those from the LGBTI community right across the country when the same-sex marriage debate was occurring, um, we can learn from that experience. And certainly what we do learn from that experience and the conversations we've had from those that were involved in leading that campaign is that there's there's going to be traumatic experiences um, across community, across the community. And there's going to be similar traumatic experiences for Indigenous people across the country. And so through the process of working with the, with the referendum engagement group, we were able to have, actually have the conversation with Minister Burney and, and the Attorney-General and others to say, look, we think that there might need to be some funds that are dedicated towards this particular issue because we know it's going to happen. Things are going to get nasty people are going to get hurt and there's going to be some damage. And so in relation to addressing that trauma, we probably need some counselling services in place. And so thankfully enough, the government's responded to that. Jacinda Namajimba Price has said that this very fact that there will be damage is a reason not to hold the referendum. Does she have a point? Well, if we if we took the same approach, we wouldn't have gone down the path of having um, the plebiscite for the, for the same-sex marriage. 
And and yes, it did cause damage. And yes, there was trauma experienced in community. But it's the outcome that was achieved at the end of that process that created, I guess, significant momentum and pride across our community in the country. And so it's, yes, whilst it's a difficult road to part, to follow and, and the path might be a little bit, I guess, jagged along the way and, and there's going to be people who are who experience trauma, the outcome that we're trying to achieve is about creating significant change for our people and we're going to keep focused on the outcome, knowing we're going to have a difficult path to get to that outcome and then working out, well, what do we do to make sure we support people in getting to that end goal? Selwyn, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. Selwyn Button is chair of the Lowerture Institute, a partner in PwC Indigenous Consulting and a member of the Voice Referendum Engagement Group. Up next, why Asian countries are hoping that the G7 meeting might shift its focus to their region. Sarah Dingle here on LNL holding on the fort for Philip Adams. Well, the quad meeting in Sydney might be off, but at the end of this week, the G7 will meet, along with other invited guest countries such as Indonesia and Vietnam and Australia. The G7 is, of course, Italy, Germany, France, the UK, the US, Canada and Japan. And Japan is this week's host. Although the G7 is not primarily an Asian grouping, there are hopes that talks this particular weekend will have more focus on Asia, including tricky topics like North Korea and the stalled peace process and a bit more big power attention on nations like Myanmar. The International Crisis Group, for one, certainly hopes that this will be the case. It's calling on the G7 to enact a shift from being a predominantly Western-centric organisation focused on containing Russia and China to showing that they have a role to play in crisis management across the Asian region. The ICG's Asia Program Director is Pierre Prakash. He's joining us from Bangkok, where he lives. Welcome, Pierre. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Pierre, first of all, we have to talk about the fact that the quad is offed. Off, I should say. Oh, off. Freudian slip. President Biden has pulled out of the quad meeting in Sydney, which was going to be him and us and India and Japan. And he's also pulled out of a visit to Papua New Guinea. How will that be received in the region? Well, I think it's not the greatest message that you can send to the region, which is um, to an extent already a little concerned that um, Ukraine in particular is consuming a lot of the attention of the Western world a little too much to their taste, as we've seen play out at the uh, UN, um, you know, UN General Assembly votes, for example, where many countries of the region have either abstained or voted against uh, resolutions that were uh, focused on Ukraine. And I think there's this general sense that basically um, what the West considers to be uh, the epical conflagration or, you know, the sort of turning point in international relations that they present Ukraine to be is not necessarily uh, at the top of priorities for countries in, in this region. And they're a little concerned that uh, Western countries are sort of too obsessed with Ukraine and therefore neglecting other parts of the world, including this part of the world, where geopolitical competition or big power rivalry, let's say, um, is, is playing out in big ways. And so they're a little concerned that particularly the US, but also other members of the G7 are not paying enough attention to the region. It's true for Asia. It's also true for the Pacific. I mean, you mentioned that indeed the meeting in, in PNG is off. Uh, it was the first time, I think, that a president, a US president was going to go to PNG. Uh, Cancelling that at the last minute obviously doesn't, um, doesn't look too good. I think on the Quad meeting, uh, According to latest information, it seems that it might still be happening on the sidelines of the G7, so in Hiroshima rather than in Sydney. Um, but obviously, yeah, not the same kind of uh, outreach and image uh, being given to the region. Mm. Well, what does that mean for the G7 then? Because President Biden is still going to the G7 in Japan. Does this mean there will be even less time and attention for G7 matters because now some quad talks are being mashed into this weekend in Hiroshima? 
So I don't have the details, unfortunately, of the of the meetings themselves. But um, you know, all of the four, because Biden and President Biden has indeed uh, maintained his visit uh, to Hiroshima for the G7 summit. Um, so you know, all four leaders of the Quad will be there, and I think the idea is to sort of add that meeting to the existing agenda uh, to also show that the Quad is is uh, something that the U.S. is um, you know keen on paying attention to. Um, how they will play that out, I don't think that would eat into the G7 agenda, which is already going to be quite packed. You have the G7 meeting. And then, as you, I think, mentioned in the beginning, um, G7 has invited uh, what they call outreach countries, uh, namely, you know, India, Indonesia, Vietnam, South Korea, Australia as well. Um, and therefore, there's other meetings with these countries uh, as well, which will be particularly important, uh, you know, in terms of what you uh, described at the beginning in, in showing that the G7 is not you know, exclusively focused, let's say, on Western interests, uh, but also has, uh, you know, is, is paying attention to the rest of the world and particularly to, um, let's say, the global south. I don't like that term because it covers many realities, but the global south, once again, on Ukraine hasn't been as, um, you know, doesn't think it's as important as the West considers it to be. And therefore, these meetings with these outreach countries are particularly important in demonstrating that the G7, if it is what it wants to be, is not exclusively a Western club looking at Western interests, but is also looking at um, you know the, the the wider world, let's say, and the concerns, and particularly economic concerns as well as conflicts of uh, countries around the world or in this region, particularly. So these heavy hitters from the Asian region, South Korea, Japan, India, Indonesia, what will they be wanting to hear from the G7 this weekend as a sign that the G7 is interested in in their patch and their problems? Well, I think um, for a lot of them, so there's there's different countries in there, right? You have India, which is more of a middle power. You have Indonesia is invited because it's the uh, Asian chair this year. You have even Comoros, which is invited because it's the African Union chair this year. Um, and then you have um, uh, the Cook Islands as, as the head of the Pacific uh, Forum. Um, I think, you know, these countries, many of them are still suffering major economic impacts of the pandemic. Uh, and I think their hope is that uh, this will be part of conversations and that conversations will not be exclusively hijacked by Ukraine and China's rise and the need to contain China, which I think is, is something that, of course, will be part and probably at the top of conversations. But basically that the post-COVID international order, if we can put it that way, uh, which implies you know <clears throat> boosting economic revival, uh, ensuring food security, uh, energy security, addressing climate change issues as well, uh, will also be sort of prominent in uh, the discussions and the joint statements that should come out of these discussions. I think that would be a good sign. And then there was, I mean, a sign that would be interpreted positively um, from the uh, from from these uh, outreach countries, as we call them. Um, and then, you know, if uh, this is also what we argue in the paper that we recently put out, that the fact that this summit is happening in Asia, which is a rare case, a rare occurrence, because Japan is the only non-Western member uh, of the G7. And since it's the chair this year, the, the summit is happening in, in Japan. Um, you know, that's an opportunity to also show uh, interest over the various crises which are unfolding in this region and not just related to China's um, rise and growing military might, which will once again be part of conversations inevitably, but also looking at the North Korean peninsula, also looking at the crisis in Myanmar and what more you know, the G7 countries can do collectively or individually um, to support ASEAN, for example, in addressing that crisis, because ASEAN efforts haven't really paid off in the last two years. Um, and also the third one we actually included in Asia in our in our list of countries that we feel the G7 should pay attention to is Pakistan, which is in the middle of a major economic crisis. Uh, and of course, you know, all these G7 countries are uh, influential members of multilateral institutions, particularly the international monetary fund, the IMF, and therefore can have influence on how to support the um, Pakistan's economic revival, uh, which is absolutely essential at this point, and which is on top of that combined with a major political crisis, which could have destabilizing effects for the region. And you know, let's not forget Pakistan is a nuclear power, so you don't want to let that go out of hand um, too much. This G7 comes as 
Japan, the host, is having a, a kind of a, a rare rapprochement with South Korea, uh, whose President Yoon is trying very hard to make overtures to Japan and uh, overcome a very painful shared history. How useful is this G7 for those two nations? Because they can be in a room, but they don't necessarily have to talk about everything that's happened between them. Is this new ground for them? I think this will definitely be sort of a positive dynamic uh, for the G7, the current rapprochement or recent rapprochement. I mean, we had President Yoon, so the South Korean president going to Japan uh, in March. Then we had um, the Japanese prime minister visiting Seoul in um, April, I think, or in May, sorry. Um, And, uh, you know, these are pretty significant developments because the relationship between these two countries has been really deteriorating um, ever since, let's say, the last decade, but particularly since 2017. Um, And it's really, uh, you know, President Yoon, who was elected last year, um, has really sort of triggered this rapprochement. Uh, It's also having consequences for him domestically in South Korea because uh, South Korean public opinion is not necessarily on board with this rapprochement. Uh, They consider that, um, you know, recent polls show that they consider that, you know, the rapprochement is not, uh, is not, required or shouldn't be uh, going further until Japan formally apologizes apologizes for uh, abuses committed during the colonial period the sort of you know um, painful history that you were that you were mentioning earlier so it but but that hasn't um, so far at least hasn't pushed him to change policy in the rapprochement with uh, Japan and that's of course very positive I think you know at a time when you have this major geopolitical realignment worldwide but in this region particularly having the two sort of robust uh, Northeast Asian democracies um, collaborating more closely is is particularly important so to come back to your question I think this will both at the G7 and in bilateral relations, it's a positive development overall. Uh, and it once again seems that you know tensions are easing quite significantly. They took some the two sides recently took some important decisions. For example, their intelligence sharing agreement, which had, which had been suspended for for several years, uh, has now been reactivated, which is of course something that uh, the U.S. is is very keen on in terms of um, building up its alliances or rebuilding its alliances in the in the region. Um, so overall, that is indeed sort of a, a positive development in the G7 dynamics and in general, I would say, um, in the region and internationally. Now, I don't want to pass up the opportunity to ask you about the recent Thai elections. You're speaking to us from Bangkok, where you live. (laughs) There's been an extraordinary election. Was it as unexpected as reports suggest? It was. Um, It was in the sense, so just to sum up for for our listeners, um, the most progressive party of of the Thai electoral landscape just won a majority or won the most number of seats in the parliament in Sunday's election. Uh, this is a party that's very young. It was actually created just at the last election in 2000 or just before the last election in 2019. To be very specific, that party was actually then dissolved by the establishment parties and the people who eventually made it to power in that election. But this is the revival of that same party. And it's a party which is for many, and until very recently, was considered too radical for Thai politics because it is extremely progressive, particularly when it comes with wanting to curtail the role of the military in politics, uh, which is which has a military in Thailand has a very important role. Let's not forget that Thailand is the world record holder of the number of coups, something that people don't necessarily associate with with Thailand. Um, and it's also been very very vocal about uh, reforming the monarchy and particularly the Les Majestés law in this country. These are debates that basically before the birth of this party were not part of the political debate. And once again, it's very recent. It's only, the party's only four years old. So the fact that they now come out on top, uh, people expected them to come out second. Uh, They were sort of the second largest opposition party in the previous legislature. Um, And the Puatai, which is a more traditional, more established party uh, linked to Prime Minister Thaksin, who's now in exile for many years, um, you know, 
they were supposed to be the number one party and create a coalition with the MFP, the Move Forward Party. Now, the Move Forward Party is actually going to be in a position to uh, nominate the prime minister, uh, who should logically be the head of the party, who, who is um, a very young politician. He's only 42 years old, which really contrasts with the out government, uh, outgoing government, which had um, much more, much older people and people with a military background, very basically establishment, let's say. Um, so it is, it is, literally a political earthquake that's just happened. However, it's not necessarily going to be an easy ride for this move forward party. First of all, they need to gather a coalition. They cannot have, you know, they don't have um, enough MPs to, to create a uh, a government on their own. But normally the poor tie has said that it will tie up with them, in which case they have a pretty comfortable majority in the lower house of parliament. However, um, Thai democracy, let's say, is is sometimes a little complicated. And so something to bear in mind is that the nomination of the prime minister involves the Senate as well. So you need a majority over the two houses, Congress, 500 MPs, Senate, 250 appointed senators, not elected senators. And these people were appointed, these senators were appointed by um, basically the previous government or even before that, the junta. So basically the pro-establishment side of the spectrum of Thai politics. Mm. And these people can very well veto the nomination of a prime minister. Uh, and considering that they are very pro-establishment and that they're very much linked to, you know, the traditional, uh, let's say, establishment parties, so, you know, pro-military, pro-royalist, many of them are actually ex-military, um, whether they will respect the popular mandate and vote for a prime minister, which is, um, you know, clearly hell-bent on reforming these aspects that are dear to them of, of the Thai um, constitutional monarchy, is, is really up in the air. And if that popular mandate is not respected, then you would be looking at potentially mass protests in Thailand in, in the near future. An earthquake, as you say, and with so much more to come. Pierre Prakash, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Pierre Prakash is the Asia Program Director with the International Crisis Group. Coming up from Tutankhamun to Taylor Swift, how we change culture through the centuries. It's 2023, and everywhere you look, we're still coming to terms with the ongoing effects of colonialism. Attempts in our own backyard and across the world to wipe out entire peoples, as well as their histories and cultures. We're also looking for new ways to respect the cultures which have survived this onslaught, as we definitely should. But somewhere along the line, we've come to think of culture itself as a form of property, something we can own and use to the exclusion of others. After looking back through 37,000 years of history, no small task, Harvard professor Martin Puckner sees culture a bit differently. He argues that it's the product of endless interactions between different people across time and that we should embrace, instead of avoid, this messy sort of cross-pollination. Martin's new book is titled Culture, The Story of Us, From Cave Art to K-pop. And he joins us now to discuss some of these thorny ideas. Welcome to the program, Martin. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. Martin, tell us how the idea for this book came about. Why on earth would you want to wade right into the literal culture wars? Yeah, well, as you said, and as you articulate in the intro, when you Google the word culture, uh, you're likely to turn up phrases like culture wars or culture, warnings against cultural appropriation. And so it's clear that we are at a moment when we fight a lot about culture. And in some ways, that's not a bad thing. It means that people care about it. People recognize that culture is important. It, it also recognizes, as you said, that we live in the aftermath of colonialism and incredible cultural violence that has been inflicted on many people. But it seemed to me a good occasion to kind of step, take a step back and not take a position necessarily in these culture wars, but to think about what culture is and maybe more importantly, how it works. So, so what I thought I'd do is sort of take this deep dive into history and sort of see what I turn up with and whether that deep historical view can somehow inform our current debate. 
Well, when you stepped back, you found that culture, as you say, isn't natural. What, what does that mean? Yeah, it mean, what by, I don't mean that humans don't always produce culture. Humans always produce culture. We are culture producing species. And by that, I mean, we are sort of trying to make sense of the world. We make meaning, we develop meaning making practices like art and religion. Um, but what, what I mean by saying that it's not natural is that it doesn't get transmitted naturally to the next generation the way our biological DNA does. And this meant that we humans have had to evolve sort of external storage devices and other mechanisms for making sure that our cultural knowledge gets transmitted to the next generation. And that can be everything from caves to libraries, universities, paintings, writing, all these techniques uh, and education, really instilling in the next generation the sense that these culture making processes are important because if they don't get transmitted, they get lost. And there are lots of these moments when a lot has been lost through throughout the ages. As anyone who has a hard drive would know, one of the key questions about an external storage device is who has access to it. You write about the Chauvet Cave in southern France as a good example of an external cultural storage device with ongoing access. Is that right? That's right. And and what's amazing about it is just how well it worked for so for how long humans started to decorate and paint these caves about 35,000 years ago. And that's the amazing thing, Sarah, they continue to do so for the next 5,000 years. It's really an incredible example of cultural continuity, if you will. And these caves, the walls of these caves, the cave itself served as a kind of external storage device, as a, as a place where humans could enter, could engage in this intergenerational work for, for a long time until a landslide closed off the cave and then it became a kind of time capsule. Tell me about religion. Religion has always been central to culture. There's a fascinating story in your book about the Ark of the Covenant and how it came to influence Ethiopian culture. Can you share this with us? It's one of my favorite episodes, Sarah, because it's lesser known. And in, in, in my book, I tried to mix some of the better known episodes, make them look appear in a new light and also promote uh, lesser known texts. So this is one of them, uh, the Kebra Nagas, which is a sort of sacred text of Ethiopian Christianity. And it's um, it, it takes its point of departure in some ways from an episode in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, when the Queen of Sheba visits King Solomon, the famously wise King Solomon. And in the Old Testament, it's presented that the Queen, Queen, Queen of Sheba from the South, wants to check out King Solomon. Is he really as wise as everyone says? And so she arrives with a huge train of people and rich presents, and she cross-examines King Solomon. And then after a while, she feels like, all right, he's pretty wise, I'm impressed. <laughs> All right, goodbye. I'm now going back. <laughs> now, now, in the in the Kebra Nagast, the Kebra Nagast also tells the story, but there's something else that happens. Uh, the Queen of Sheba becomes pregnant with a son from King Solomon. And so the son grows up, and when the son is of age, she sends him back to his father in Jerusalem, and King Solomon accepts the son, is thrilled that he's there, wants him to rule uh, with him, but after a while, the, the son wants to return home to, to Aksum in Ethiopia. And so King Solomon sends him back with a sort of entourage of young men. And the night before they leave, they steal the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments that Moses had written on Mount Sinai, the holiest object of Judaism in many wow. ways. And, Kids, and so they can't take trust that. <laughs> no. <laughs> and, and bring it to Ethiopia. Uh, where it becomes sort of the foundation of Ethiopian Christianity. So for me, this is a beautiful example of what I call cultural grafting, of where, where Ethiopia decides to sort of graft this Old Testament tradition uh, onto its own tradition and, and create that connection that on the one hand is a dynastic connection, the sun, and the, this stolen object, the Ten Commandments. This is Sarah Dingle filling in for Philip Adams here on Late Night Live. My guest is the Harvard professor Martin Puckner and we're discussing his latest book, Culture, the Story of Us, from cave art 
to K-pop. Martin, speaking of cultural grafting, probably the most successful example of that, the one that everyone knows at any rate, is the massive crossover between Greek and Roman cultures. How did that work so well, that fusion? Yeah, the sort of standard story is that this is all due to the great influence of Greek culture there, that it, and it presents cultural history sort of as a almost like a relay race where you know the Greeks have the baton of culture and they race ahead and then they pass it on to Rome and Rome takes it and then I don't know passes it on on to Great Britain or something like that. In this book, I started to think much more about these later cultures who are not so much influenced by other cultures that leaves all the agency with the earlier culture. But on the contrary, the Romans decided sort of out of their own free will to basically import an entire cultural package composed of religion, art, philosophy, literature, and, and graft it onto its own tradition. It was a very unusual thing. And, you know, we today think very much of culture, sort of powerful cultures imposing their culture onto sort of weaker defeated cultures. But but this, this isn't how this Roman episode works at all, because Rome had defeated a Greek alliance in battle, but nevertheless decided to sort of graft this massive cultural package onto its own Roman and Etruscan tradition. So so that, that wasn't necessary. Uh, it was it was unusual and, and they did it. So and it was very successful. Something that I don't think many people realise um, is that we have in the West the scholars of Baghdad to thank for the fact that much classical culture or record of it survives at all. Can you tell us about the storehouse of wisdom? Yeah, I, since I was interested in in storage devices, I've always been intrigued by this name, the storehouse, the house of wisdom, or originally the storehouse of wisdom. Mm. And it, it's a perfect name because, uh, so we have the rising Arab empire, uh, it expands very rapidly. And at some point there's sort of this moment of consolidation and a new capital gets created, uh, Baghdad. And then one of the kings decides to basically turn Baghdad into a center of learning. And it's a remarkable episode. Uh, and it's sort of at the heart of the, what's sometimes called the golden age of Arabic letters. And what's crucial about it is that Harun al-Rashid and, and his scholars decide not just to focus on Islam and Islamic knowledge, but to basically translate and import knowledge wherever they can find it from you know, treatises from, from India, from Persia, and very deliberately and consistently from, from classical Greece. And, and this was a period when when Europe had sort of lost track, more or less, of Greek philosophy. So it was preserved there, not just preserved, it was their, their commentaries. Uh, Avicenna, for example, is one of the figures that really was influenced by Greek literature and philosophy, but also turned it into something new. So a, a great moment of amalgamation, a great uh, openness for pre-Islamic and non-Islamic thought, and a recognition that this doesn't, it wouldn't make Arab literature and Arab theology weaker, but it would actually make it stronger. On the other hand, we do have to mention there are some terrible examples of cultures being almost completely wiped out, particularly by Europeans during colonialism. You write about the Aztecs in absolutely excruciating detail. But there are also stories of cultures fighting back. Tell us about Toussaint Louverture in what is now Haiti. Yeah, so it's it's one of the, the Haitian revolution for a long time only received a kind of asterisk or footnote in the history of revolutions, which was always dominated by the American revolution, the French revolution. But the Haitian revolution is a fascinating and important uh, moment in, in the history of world history. It, it's the first successful revolution of formerly enslaved people in the new world. And there are many ways of explaining that success. And it's it's very moving against all odds. But one of the things that interested me is how Toussaint Louverture and other Haitian revolutionaries used enlightenment ideas from Europe, from France, from the colonists, and basically turned them around and turned them against the oppressors. 
And so that that's fascinating to see and watch how these enlightenment ideas, which in France seem to exist very comfortably alongside the idea of colonial exploitation, suddenly acquire very different function and role uh, when they are in the hands of Toussaint Louverture and other Haitian revolutionaries. So for me, it's an example, of course, again, of borrowing, if you will, but also how a set of ideas or an artwork that may come to existence in one set of political circumstances can change and be adopted and reused for a very different purpose. In a similar vein, on the topic of borrowing, uh, you write that a figure that has shaped and in turn been shaped by the story of Nigeria is Nobel Prize winning writer Wale Shoyinka. Tell me his story and why you've included him in your book. I've long been fascinated with Wale Shoyinka. One of my original fields of study was drama and I think he's really the greatest playwright of the 20th century. Uh, He grew up in Nigeria, uh, in colonial Nigeria, and there absorbed a kind of Western literary canon from Shakespeare to the Greek classics. Um, At the same time, he, especially through his extended family and other cultural influences, uh, of course, grew up in the context of Yoruba culture. And so he brought these, in some sense, these two influences together after independence uh, and created a dramatic oeuvre that is just fascinating and very powerful that grapples with the history of colonialism. And he's writing in English, of course, the language of of the colonizer. But it's another example where that language in the hands of Bolishoyinka, but of course, many other writers, acquires a different tenor, a, a different valence, a different force, and becomes a tool for articulating for this artificially created colonial huge country, Nigeria, with all its different language groups and so on and so forth, some sense of cultural identity. And I think this is something that happened in one way or another across the former uh, colonial world, that suddenly it's clear that it was clear to everyone, I think, that political independence, hugely important, was one thing, but achieving some form of cultural independence was another. And I think for, for me, Wolosheryenka and the way he drew on different influences to create some sense of cultural independence uh, is a perfect example of that. Well, now to another form of colonialism. Here is an earworm. Open Gangnam Style. Gangnam Yes, this is Late Night Live. Do not adjust your radio. This is, of course, Psy with Gangnam Style. Psy is the South Korean singer, rapper and producer who colonised the world a decade ago with that track. Why do you think this song and K-pop more broadly has such global appeal? It, it's fascinating. And, you know, I wanted to end the book with... Uh, with with an episode from the internet age, from our own world, where you know sharing culture, sharing has become such an important word for for the internet. And so, Gaiman Style was sort of the first music video, YouTube video that really broke through and that made K-pop what it's become. So, in part, it it's of course a story about our new social media and their influence. But what I found interesting is when I sort of dug deeper into this story and looked for its historical roots, it became, again, one of these intertwined moments of cultural amalgamation that went very deep and that in some sense starts in the aftermath of the Korean War when when singing groups, especially female groups, started to sing for American soldiers. There are different cultural influences that get absorbed. And there's also government influence. So the government started to, in the 80s, started to create institutions and promote culture as a kind of export product. So you have everything from new communication technologies to government policies to Histories like the, you know, the history in the aftermath of the Korean War, all these different forces coming together. I'm not saying that, you know, if you 
take these elements you could could have predicted k-pop it, it is one of the most sort of explosively <laughs> unpredictable things but no one back, can predict the k-wave no one <laughs> no, no one can uh, no one can but for me because you know i i'm too old to have grown up with k-pop but i've watched uh you know kids of friends uh grow up with it and there's sort of this one moment when i realized okay i have to write write about this a few years ago when i was staying with norwegian friends actually in oslo and i you know i got up early i think i was jet lagged got up very early and their 12 year old son has already gone up has set his alarm clock is sitting there on his own at the kitchen table studying korean because he wanted to learn more about his k-pop idols and so it's at this wow. moment when i realized okay there's something really important and kind of cool going on yeah i mean <laughs> what secret source is that how do we how do we work out what they've done there that is amazing martin having looked back at the entire arc of cultural history i know you don't like to come down on a particular side but how should we approach these debates about ownership of culture, particularly when it comes to physical objects like the Binion bronzes, for instance, and, and who gets to have them? Who gets to have them in their country? Yeah, it's a very tricky question, and I grapple with it all the time, um, Sarah. So from the perspective of this, these 35,000 years, I would say I completely understand that sometimes arguments about cultural ownership can be effective in bringing back bronzes, for example, these Benin bronzes that were acquired under just the most exploitative and brutal circumstances. So and I understand that, and I think it's important to return them. Um, what, what I would add, though, is that the idea, the ideal of, of this can't be that everything just go back to where it started. I think that would leave everyone sort of impoverished. And it would go against that big arc of culture, which I think bends towards cultural mixing. So I think that we, what I would, in my ideal world, and I, I, I haven't quite figured out how to do it myself, is that we would find a slightly different language of saying why it's important to return these objects that isn't so much based on cultural ownership, because I find that very hard, it's very hard to draw the line um, and it's, I think it, it, it sort of interrupts the, the sharing that culture wants to engage in. So while I completely understand the restitution debate of cultural objects, I think ultimately we have to find a different language than that of ownership in order to engage in more borrowing rather than less, though in better forms of borrowing uh, than we have done in the past. So this is sort of what, where I've come down on. Solving the problems of the world there. Martin Puckner, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Martin Puckner is a professor of English and comparative literature at Harvard University and a prize-winning author. We've been talking about his latest book, Culture, the Story of Us, from Cave Art to K-Pop, published by W.W. W. Norton. That's all we have time for. On our next The Problem No One is Talking About, the Phosphorus Paradox. And we meet the women who used art to fight fascism. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.